morning again. Um, this is the Bible app that's on the screen in case you're new to us or relatively new to us. We don't always mention it, but every once in a while I like to. Uh, you can get that for your phone or your tablet, wherever you get your uh, apps. Just type in the word Bible, and most likely this one will pop to the top. It's very popular. Um, and once you download that, if you turn on your location services and you open it up, you click on more, you click on events, and our live event should show up. In that, we have lots of connection for you in terms of what's happening at ECC uh, and in terms of uh, some resources, some questions, and so forth that we have each week for this sermon if you have some more thoughts or uh, conversation about that. So I encourage you to do that. So Utah is a state <clears throat> with many natural wonders. I don't know if you know, but Utah has five national parks. And when Kim and I were in Utah last summer, the, during 21, uh, for the sabbatical, we managed to get to all five of those parks. In truth, we uh, barely got to Arches. We got to drive through at dusk and leave, and the next morning we tried to go, and it said, park is full, Come back in five hours, <clears throat> which we did not do. We had to be somewhere else. But we went, so it counts. These past couple of... I had a pin that I had to put on my backpack. We went. <clears throat> These past couple of weeks, however, I have st- discovered another national, uh, or natural wonder in the state of Utah. Um, if I had known about this when I was there, I would have tried to make sure that we got to see it. <clears throat> Turns out that Utah is the home of the single largest living organism in the world by weight, weighing in at more than 6,000 tons and taking up 108 acres, just out of curiosity. Does anybody know, without Googling it, what that is? Rick? It's the Aspen Grove. Fantastic. It's the Pando Aspen Grove. <clears throat> it's South Central Utah. And you may say, wait a minute, Pastor Stacy, that's thousands of trees. That's not one organism. And what I would like to say to you is what my Old Testament professor, Fred Holmgren, used to say to us when we weren't exactly right in answering his questions. He would say, ah, you could say that, yes, but you would be wrong. <clears throat> An aspen grove, it turns out, is not a bunch of living organisms. It is one organism with each stem sprouting up from one giant root ball, which I said is absolutely huge. There are more than 47,000 stems or trees coming up in the Pando Aspen Grove, Um, but underground, they are all connected. They are all one. They are all nourished by the same root system. The researchers who discovered the the grove in 1976 named it uh, Pando, a Latin word for I spread, which it has done. Pando is a near-perfect, a near-perfect metaphor for the unity that the Apostle Paul has been talking to us about all through the book of Ephesians. All along the way, Paul has reminded us repeatedly that God's plan, everything's about unity, and God's plan, ultimate plan, is to bring all things together, to bring unity to all things. But Paul is not merely telling us about God's plan for unity. He's inviting us to partner with God in that plan. Paul is not merely telling us about God's plan for unity. He is inviting us to partner with God in that plan. He says this in chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, Christ has already created unity among us. He has united us to one another as followers of Jesus 
in his death, his resurrection, and our faith, putting our faith in him. Our job is not to create unity. Our job is to keep it, to protect it, to sustain it, and to nourish it. In the passage from last week, Pastor Chuck took us into the second half of the book of Ephesians that is sometime in Paul's letters, this section of Paul's letters is referred to as the so what section. That is, Paul, if everything you've told us so far in the first three chapters is true, so what? What practical difference does it make? What are we supposed to do with this? The answer, Paul says, as Chuck told us last week, is we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Chapter 4, verse 1. Because Jesus has rescued us, because Jesus has unified both Jews and Gentiles, and that's all of us, into one new humanity, and because he will one day unify all things in heaven and on earth, we must now choose to walk in such a way to bear that out. We must keep the unity. All of us. Whether we realize it or not, all of us are either keeping the unity or we are trying to destroy it. And over the last few years, we have done a better job at trying to destroy that unity than trying to keep it. In this week's section of the letter, Paul will get a bit more pointed in after he's described what, will, what we will look like as the church of Jesus Christ, as we are uh, maturing in Christ, as we have been joined together and held together by love, built up in love. Paul continues with this in verse uh, 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He's writing to mostly Gentiles, non-Jews. He's telling them that they need to walk differently than they walked or than they lived before they came to know Christ. Why? Because that's not who they are anymore. They have a new identity. So Paul is kind of, if, if I can use this metaphor this morning, he's kind of in first gear. He's just picking up some speed. And in the verses that follow, Paul then rehashes a lot of what he said in chapter 2 about the way we all used to live before we came to know Christ. In verse 20 and following, he begins to describe our new way of life in Christ as taking off certain things, like yesterday's dirty clothes, and putting on new things, like a brand new set of clothes. So after criticizing their former way of life, Paul shifts from first gear into second gear in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and, and holiness. There's a lot happening here. In the first place, the New International Version, the NIV, refers to learning and hearing about Christ. More literally, verse 20 says, but you all have not so learned Christ. You have not so learned Christ. This is not the way you learned Christ. And what does it mean to learn Christ rather than to learn about Christ? It means to learn not only that God in Christ has saved us and forgiven us, but to learn the way of Christ in the world. It is to learn the way of Christ in the world. It is is to walk as Jesus walked. 
It is to be transformed into Christ's image and therefore to be able to live differently than you lived before. Or as we say here at ECC, it is to journey the path from curiosity about Jesus to Christoformity in Jesus. Having Christ's image formed in us, filling us, shaping us, and overflowing into the world. To learn Christ, as the late Dallas Willard used to put it, is to seek to live your life as Jesus would live your life if he were you. To learn Christ is to seek to live your life as Jesus would live your life if he were you. Second, there is in this passage a sense here that we have actually already put off all this stuff and have already put on this stuff. When we came to faith in Christ, we put off the old self and we put on the new. You were taught, Paul says, past tense. Because we have come to faith in Christ, we live in this overlap between these two ages that we've talked about a few times. This present age and the age to come, the new creation has begun, but it has not come in full. We live in the overlap. We are being transformed. But we are always in need of more transformation. One of our commitments here at ECC, then, is to be transformed and ever transforming. To be Transform to come to faith in Christ and to be transformed, but then to be ever transforming. So there are still things we must put off. There are still things we must put on. It's an ongoing reality for us. We are being renewed. It is a process. And it's a process that invites and requires our participation and our consent. Our transformation is a process that invites and requires our participation and our consent. By the grace of God, we take on practices that help us to be ever putting off some things and ever putting on new things. To step out of the old creation and into the new creation wherever it overlaps the old. Now it is certainly true that we do this as individuals. We are as individuals to participate and pursue our own spiritual transformation. But Paul is saying something more here, something bigger and I would say probably more demanding. We as a church, we as one body, as one new humanity, we are to put off the things that create disunity and dissension and to put on the things that nourish that unity. In context, we are to put off the things that create disunity and dissension and to put on the things that keep and nourish that unity. So Paul has shifted from first to second, And now in verse 25, he's going to shift soundly into third gear. He gets very specific about what needs to be put off in their case when it comes to keeping the unity of the Spirit. Verses 25 and following. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for you are all members of one body, and your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So, on the one hand, I said a few weeks ago, it does not appear when we're reading this letter to the Ephesians that there's any real doctrinal error that Paul is trying to deal with. (laughs) On the other hand, uh, the only reason to mention these things, falsehood, anger, theft, and the like, is because they're apparently a problem. They're apparently a problem, right? Right? Take off those things in your relationships with one another as sisters and brothers in Christ 
and put something else on instead. Speaking truthfully to one another, resolving your anger and not letting it fester, and making an honest living so that you're able to be generous with others instead of taking from them. But he's just getting started. He shifts gears again. Now he's going to go to fourth gear, verses 29 and 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now Paul goes after unwholesome talk, more literally rotten, putrid, corrupt talk. It is a word that is often used of food that has gone bad, or flowers that have withered, or wood that is rotted. Certainly this can speak of swearing and the like, but in the context of community, and the context of the plea to keep the unity, it means that we must get rid of words that tear down rather than build up. Things that cause our unity and community to rot. This is about how we talk to and about one another as followers of Jesus in community. A few years ago, as a part of our vitality pathway toward congregational renewal, a team of us got together and created a relational covenant. And the, the point of a relational covenant is to hold ourselves accountable to live in a certain way with one another in terms of how we relate, relate to one another, how we talk about one another, and that sort of thing. We read that covenant every week at staff meeting, every month at the beginning of council meetings, and we will read it this afternoon in our congregational meeting. And in that relational covenant, one of the commitments we make is this one. We will speak wisely and carefully, understanding that words can tear down or build up. To speak in a manner that degrades one another, that gossips about one another, or tears a sister or brother down is to allow unwholesome, corrupt, putrid words to come out of our mouths. Why? Because words of that nature destroy the unity that God intends. And we all know once those words have come out of our mouths, they're very hard to take back. In some cases, impossible. And then in verse 30, there is this interesting note about not grieving the Holy Spirit of God that a lot of the phrases that Paul uses in this part of the passage come from different places in the Old Testament. This one does too. It comes from Isaiah 63. And in Isaiah 63, the prophet is drawing on the Exodus when God delivered uh, the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, which again, without even having any conversation about what was happening, it fits well with the children's message. He's doing this, and in Isaiah 63.10, after talking about leading them out, it says this, <laughs> Isaiah 63.10, Yet they rebelled <laughs> and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. When Paul admonishes the Ephesians and us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God in Ephesians 4, verse 30, he is calling us back to that, that way, that image of the chosen people who rebelled against God in the wilderness while they were fleeing Egypt and headed for the promised land. They complained about the food, you heard it. They complained about the water, they want to go back. Like us, they were not living and walking as those who had been saved by the very grace of God. The people of Israel, by the way, did not do anything to earn or to deserve to be rescued. It was purely an act of God's grace. However, once 
They had experienced that deliverance. It was expected that they would walk in a manner worthy of the calling they, of the calling they had received as those who had experienced God's deliverance, God's salvation. Not to do so was to rebel against God and to grieve God's Holy Spirit. Our dissension, our disunity rebels against God's good purposes for us and rebellion causes God, our rebellion causes God to grieve. How do we grieve God's spirit today? We fail to take off the things that make for disunity. Our lying to one another, our anger with one another, our selfishness, our rotting, putrid, corruptive talk to, with, and about one another. It's a strong rebuke. Do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. But there's also a note of hope here. Paul refers to this spirit as the one with whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. In the midst of these challenging words, Paul reminds us that we have been sealed, that even our failure to keep the unity of the Spirit, even our sin and rebellion, do not cause God to remove His Spirit from us or to take His salvation away from us. The grace of God is sufficient. Even in our sin and rebellion, God loves us and remains committed to us. Thanks be to God. Let's go back to verse 25 for a moment. There's something we kind of passed over that I want to call attention to. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. That's how the New International Version translates the highlighted part there. We are all members of one body, but that's not exactly what it says. The meaning is very similar, but more to the point, Paul says, if we are all members of one another. We are all members of one another. <clears throat> In one sense, the Pando Aspen Grove is one body. In another sense, each tree is a member of all the other trees. They are all interconnected and nourished by the same root ball. If one, if one stem or tree is damaged... Uh, in another part of, uh, of the aspen grove, the, the roots will carry the resources, the nutrients necessary to that part of the grove to bring healing. If one tree is close to water and the roots are close to water, then the roots underneath that tree will take that water and bring it to another part of the grove that does not have access to water. Those individual stems or trees are members of one another in the strongest possible sense. Now, if these, if these aspen roots were conscious and able to choose not to do these things, not to deliver the necessary resources to the parts that needed it most, part of the grove would die. Just this morning, as I was rereading my sermon, I, I heard this turn of phrase, phrase, members of one another, and, and I was uh, convicted, not in any, about anything specific that I could think of, but just more uh, convicted about how I think about these things. What, it, what would it mean if whenever I or we were tempted to do one of these things, to say something unkind about a sister or brother, to gossip or to speak falsely, what, what would it mean if every time we were tempted to do that, we simply stopped and said, wait a minute, I can't do this. I can't say this about that person because we're members of one another. What would that do? Paul could have said, don't do these things because God doesn't like it, but he doesn't do that. He said, don't do them because you're members of one another. It's just foolish. It's a powerful and intimate phrase, members of one another, and should give us pause whenever we are tempted to say or do something that disunifies or disrespects or tears down a sister or brother. These days, the 
Pando Aspen Grove is in danger, an overpopulation of deer and unchecked grazing, droughts and pests are a threat to it. All of this is a poignant picture of what we, the Church of Jesus Christ, we, ECC, can and should be for one another. We are to keep the unity of the Spirit. But there are things that threaten to damage us too. Gossip, anger, falsehood, selfishness. We might add today an unwillingness to listen to one another and a failure to be curious about what others think when they think or believe differently than we do. It's hard. I know that. And yet, it is what we are called to do, for we are members of one another. In his book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, Rich Velotis tells the story of receiving an email late one night from one of the leaders in his church. It's, his church is a large, multi-ethnic congregation in Manhattan. <clears throat> this was in late 2020, and the presidential election was only a few weeks away. And in Rich's church, like so many Uh, people were divided on this issue. The email suggested that they host a Zoom call in which Rich would interview one elder who was planning to vote for Trump and one elder who was planning to vote for Biden and ask them why. And Rich said, when he was talking to us about it, I don't think he said this on the phone to this person or whatever, Rich said that when he heard that, and he said it more colorfully than I'm going to say it, heck no! It's a disaster waiting to happen. He further says that on the night when they finally did do this, right before he goes on, he's like, this is going to be awful. This is going to be terrible. The camera comes on and Zoom and he says, this is going to be great because that's what we do. We lie. (laughs) In the end, however, that conversation did happen. It was challenging. It was sometimes awkward. It was hard, but it was good. In the end, it was one way his congregation sought to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In verse 31, Paul sums up all this once more, and he shifts again into fourth gear, and he tells us what needs to be put off one more time. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, by now, most of us uh, know, I hope, that social media profits by trafficking in these things. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. They track what we read, what we post, what we repost, and they feed us more of it. Why? Because anger and rage create engagement, and engagement means money. Well, as we are at midterm election time, let us pause to consider that we're only two years away from the next presidential election. Goody! Here we go again. What will you put off before engaging on social media? What will you put on before engaging on social media? For these things affect the people in your family, in our community, to say nothing of your sisters and brothers in this congregation. As you prepare to engage on social media, I invite you to consider this quote. I used to believe thus and such, but read an angry post on Facebook and changed my mind. Said no one ever. That might be hyperbole, but only a bit. Our words, our actions, and the way we walk and talk in the world and with one another can do tremendous damage to the church and to our witness in the world. What do we need to put off? What do we need to put on? 
So far, Paul has shifted from first to second, from second to third, third to fourth. Now he's going to go into overdrive. This should do it. I can't go any faster. <laughs> As he finishes off our passage, and he says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we stay with this image of the aspen grove, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, love, sacrifice are the nutrients should, that should be flowing through our roots to one another, for we are members of one another. We are connected at the most fundamental level. Whether we know it or not, and whether, frankly, we always like it or not, we are connected at the most fundamental level because this is how God works. All of this reminds me of a poem with which I've recently been re-familiarized. Again, thanks to Rich Velotas. I'd read it before, but it's a poem that speaks to the state of the world, the state of the nation right now, perhaps the state of the church as well. It was written by Langston Hughes in 1930, and it reflects, he was an African-American poet, reflects his weariness and frustration with the state of segregation and racism in the United States at that time, but his words are prophetic. They speak to our time as well. Poem's called Tired. I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. The world and the church have been cut in two over the past few years. And there are worms eating at the rind. What are we to do? Paul says we are to put off the old self. Bitterness, rage, brawling, anger, selfishness, slander, malice, and the like. And we are to put on generosity, kindness, compassion, and love. Doing so will not directly change or heal the world. But if we do it well, if we do it faithfully, if we do it intentionally, putting on these things will heal us. It will heal our congregations, and it will heal the larger church. And we will live into that unity that Christ's death and resurrection have already given us. And the mystery God has placed within us will be revealed to the world, to our neighbors. We will become what psychiatrist and author Kurt Thompson calls an outpost of beauty. A living, breathing, thriving demonstration of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We can become an example of what is possible. We can become an invitation to eternal, abundant life for a tired and weary world. For these are the things God has in store for us. This is where God is taking all things, though it may be hard for us to see it right now. And these things have been revealed to us and in us, God's people, the church of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, let us put off the things that destroy unity and let us put on the things that keep, sustain, protect, and nourish that unity. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for our brother Paul. We thank you for his faithfulness uh, to care for and pastor the people of his time in such a way that his words have been preserved for us and are prophetic even to us this day. We, Lord, grieve 
that we have not always lived up to this calling, that we have not always walked in a manner worthy of the calling we've received as individuals and as a congregation, as leaders and as congregants. Forgive us, we pray. Lord, would you teach us what it means to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of of peace? Would you teach us what it means that we are members of one another? Would you help us to lean into you and to know that you are present and to know that you are at work even when we can't see it and to lean into you and to allow you to work in our lives, to work in our hearts, that we might truly become a people in and through whom the mystery of your plan would be revealed to us, for us, and through us. And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.